Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Glad to be with you after two days of the Senate Judiciary Committee's confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Now, coming up on today's program, a report from Atlanta-based the Carter Center reveals COVID-19 pandemic presented many challenges for caregivers, adding to already existing challenges. And we'll meet a caregiver to share his story, Eric Barnett, and we'll talk with Jennifer Olson from the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. Plus, a new play at the Alliance Theater focuses on a family torn apart by war. We'll talk with the writer behind Bina's Six Apples, Lloyd Suh, and Chris Moses, the Alliance Theater's Director of Education. And we'll look at what a guaranteed income pilot program in Oakland, California, can teach us about similar efforts here in Atlanta. All those conversations coming up, but first this... Governor Brian Kemp has signed a one-time tax refund for Georgians. The $1.1 billion bipartisan package translates to $250 for single filers and $500 for joint filers. Now, to get your ends, as the kids say, folks need to file 2020 and 2021 taxes in order to get the refund. Again, in order to get this, you need to file your 2020 and 2021 taxes. The payments are expected to start going out in May. In other news, a proposal to increase postpartum Medicaid coverage for women with high-risk high conditions is moving forward at the Capitol. The House Health and Human Services Committee unanimously approved the measure this week. Our new WABE health reporter, Jess Matador, Mador has more. The months after a baby is born can be medically risky for postpartum women, and Georgia's rate of maternal mortality is among the highest in the nation. Now, lawmakers want to extend the state's postpartum Medicaid coverage to a year from the current six months. At a hearing, advocate Tina Marie Marston told the committee her own story shows a lack of health care can be life-threatening. At the age of 28 and four months after the birth of my second son, I was diagnosed with postpartum cardiomyopathy, also known as PPCM. Early warning signs during and after pregnancy were missed in my case. I did eventually need a mechanical heart pump just to sustain life, which clearly shows that a maternal health crisis can have a lifelong impact. Governor Brian Kemp has already added $28 million to the state budget to implement the change once it passes the state legislature. I'm Jess Mador, WABE News. And speaking of state lawmakers, they are honoring Georgia's youngest certified farmer, six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson, yes, Six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson grows crops in her South Fulton garden. And guess what? She made her debut at the Capitol this week. I got carrots, tomatoes, okra, and I think I got some sweet potatoes that will be growing later. All right, that is cool. Johnson has already received national attention for her garden, which, by the way, she's using it to raise money for outdoor agricultural learning spaces. Again, Way cool, Kindle. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu.
And Closer Look continues here on WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I know it's not uncommon that at some point, many of us may need to care for a family member, or we indeed may be the family member who one day will need care. And a recent report from the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers reveals during the pandemic, that task became more challenging and more people became caregivers. We know that. But at the same time, becoming more isolated, too, which has had impacts on physical and mental health. And there are so many other different circumstances. Well, today we're going to dive deep into the issue and look at possible solutions to the challenges facing caregivers with my next guest. Jennifer Olson is chief executive officer of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers in Southwest Georgia. Eric Barnett lives in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he's the primary caregiver for his father, Eric, and both are military veterans. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Jennifer, you're with us as well. Thank you. Yes. All right. Eric, let me start with you. Um, tell me about your father. Hi. Well, thank you again for having me on. Uh, my father is uh, 63, 90% uh, disability percentage ranked and have it, has a pending case to try to increase those benefits mm-hmm. uh, for the moment or at the moment. He is, uh, say, his health has declined, especially during the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, legally blind uh he has a weakness in his body due to three strokes and it's just the list goes on and on sure and eric you are full-time caregiver for your father correct yes which means it's it's you're not you you, this is full-time work for you you're not working correct Uh, correct yeah this is this is my job 24 7 365 i don't i don't get a break i don't get a vacation let me ask you this. How do you or are you able to take self-care for yourself? And if so, how? Uh, only recently I noticed that I was losing track of who I was as a person. Uh, I would be the person to openly admit that I've contemplated suicide because it's just been a tough time. Even before the pandemic, just taking care of my father was a difficult situation. So, Eric, um, I want to be clear for our listeners so they under, that they understand you. You're saying that... The, the the issues, not just in taking care of your father, but there were some pre-existing issues before you had to assume that role, some mental uh, yes. health. Now, is, it, is it fair to, to assess we're talking mental health issues here for you? Yes. Uh, depression, anxiety. I mean, I haven't been diagnosed, but it's just even trying to be diagnosed to jump through numerous hoops to even be seen by someone to get help mm-hmm. is just it's unrealistic. And so now with the and you choose this. This is what you want to do. And many will say this is what a, a good son or daughter would do. You're taking care of your father. This is an extra added. I don't like to use the word burden, but it's an extra added responsibility to you for you. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I would agree. And I, I, I would say at certain times it, it can be a burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concept of a nuclear family doesn't exist in this era. It's no longer the 1950s style of like leave it to beaver wears wife, mother, kids, dog, white mm-hmm. picket fence that sure. either people help themselves out with just one person or they have other people stepping in. But for my situation, my family members are silent. They know the situation. They know his health and they decide to not uh, step up and to mm-hmm. be that person. So and- it's just... I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, 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 I'm just trying to make sure we hear you and give you an opportunity to let folks know. And before I move to Jennifer, I want to ask you one other question, Eric. Your father's a veteran, so does he not qualify for in-home care assistance to give you a he break? Does. Uh, yes, he, he does qualify. Recently, we were had our services be cut for some random reason. There's no records of anything. They just cut it. But now we're slowly getting it back. But the four or five hours here and there it still doesn't help out uh, the entirety of me being a caregiver. The, the mm-hmm. programs that are put in place, they look specifically at my father's discharge year and not his percentage of disability. You would think a person with 90% disability, three strokes, legally blind would require some assistance from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the avenues or the institutions that I've looked into, they, they've just ignored me. Eric, what was his discharge year? Uh, 79, 1979. That's been quite a while. Uh, Yes. 
Jennifer, you hear stories like Eric and his father. This is not lost on the work that you all do at the Carter, at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. That's correct. Uh, there are over 50 million family members and friends caring for someone, uh, and that care can be from as intensive and diverse as what Eric handles for all the services that he supports with his father, whether that's appointment management or meals or you know, making sure that the house is as safe for a potential fall or risk um, to listening every time his father goes to sleep. These are all uh, common elements of the caregiver journey. And that number, 50 million, 53 million was pre-pandemic. So we can only imagine now how large this uh, problem is and how much it's impacting people's physical, mental and financial health. And in Eric's case, Eric says, you know, look, I this is my full time job. I'm not even working a full time job. But then you add in those who are which we call caregiver employees, those who are Mm -hmm. trying to balance both. That's right. We often say that those individuals are working a double um, every day. Uh, between both of the dynamics. And uh, in stories like Eric's, uh, we have heard that people will uh, transition maybe from a full-time role to, you know, reduce hours. That might be step one. And then, or look for a job that's more flexible and then maybe have to leave the workforce. Uh, Nearly two in 10 employees that we have talked to who are caregivers completely left the workforce, which creates obvious implications and um, has some impact on social cohesion. I mean, I think Eric probably struggles with interacting with peers and finding places to mm-hmm. be his true self. Um, and we hear that often. You all had a study, or a white paper rather, it was called Invisible Overtime, what employers need to know about caregivers. And I guess for a lot of folks who may be listening to this program, maybe not even thought about it. Often we hear about child care. And the challenges for for employees when it comes to child care, we know that employers, depending on where you are, some of them have initiated programs to help. But we don't hear enough about caregivers, those employees who are caregivers. And this white paper that you all have really kind of pulls the curtain back on all of this. That's right, Rose. We think many employers may not realize, but one in five full-time employees are serving in a caregiving role for an Uh, older, aging, or disabled loved one, or friend, or family member, Um, and the implications that that has on presenteeism, you know, you can be at work, but not really be at work, or um, productivity is, we can think of how that could play out, Um, how people are able to connect to their coworkers or not in that space, um, how they end up taking leave to take a parent or friend to the doctor, um, their own PTO. So that means they're definitely not taking respite breaks. And that is on the employee front. And I want to go back to Eric for a moment. Eric, have you been trying to find employment where you could work at home and at the same time be with your father? Or is that, would that even be conducive for you to even try to make that, that shift, that switch? It would be a realistic and beneficial uh, tool to to look into, but it's difficult to try to find realistic jobs that are remote or that can last or at least has a, a good amount of income that would be useful towards my situation. So it's not like they have just job applications or websites that say, okay, work at home, don't come in, <laughs> or just something where it, it would... I could have a, a, a good flexibility towards any form of scheduling and uh, at home work or remote work would be beneficial, but it's not like they Is broadcast or advertise those uh, positions. Widely. So you would, so in other words, you would need to find the job first and then hope that you could work at home if it's not already identified in the job descriptions, what you're saying? Yes, correct. Uh, with my credentials, associates, bachelors, creating my own class, my last semester at Old Dominion University, I have the capabilities and the creativity as well as the just the persistence to find employment and to keep mm-hmm. <laughs> keep myself afloat. But the, the the policies that are being put in by 
an outdated and hypocritical governing body when they reinforce ableist policies that only neglect caregivers and their physical, mental, and financial well-being, and that keeps on going. I mean, if their policies aren't changed or acknowledged, then people like me are just going to keep on happening. Their, the mental stability will, will change. And Eric, when you say policies that don't acknowledge folks like you, you are you referencing in terms of uh, family Med- family medical leave act, which you know is in place, you know FMLA. Uh, be, can you be a little bit more specific in terms of when you say they have these these barriers for you? Who are you referring yes, to? Yes, yes. Uh, the well, I'm, I live in Virginia, so the Virginia Employment Commission, as well as just. Uh, well, the Virginia Employment Commission, I could start with that, just filing for unemployment to state even beforehand. I saw <laughs> the fire even before the house had burned down to kind of acknowledge what needs to be addressed and state, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what needs to happen. And to not have my answer or question be answered, it's it's wrong. As well as for the VA, I've been told repeatedly, 79 is peacetime for for veterans. So any any caregiving or benefits would be different from someone that would be that was injured or discharged in a wartime, such as Vietnam or something like that. So you're so, saying you were told the benefits are different for the veteran based on when they were discharged and whether or not we were in a conflict or there was war or, or something of like for folks that served during Desert Storm or in Afghanistan and, and, you know, as a Vietnam War, your father was discharged in this quote-unquote peacetime, so there's a different set of benefits for him? Is that uh, what yes. you're saying? Uh, yeah, wow. he was stationed in uh, Panama protecting the Miraflores locks, and he was injured there and discharged in 79. And how they they constituted, they they don't look at his 90% disability, they only look at his uh, discharge year, and from there they give him certain type of benefits and then uh, for for me, I'm only limited to aspects that don't even help me out. No stipend, mm-hmm. no access to mental health services. Yet I'm the person taking him to literally everything, making sure he's able to stay alive. Okay, let me let me go back to Jennifer for a second, because Jennifer, now we're getting to policy and legislation. Is this something that legislation, whether it's federal or state, can help folks like Eric? And if so. What should that look like through your through your organization's lens or could look like? I think the first step is recognizing that uh, the act of being a caregiver is a form of work. And so when we think about uh, approaches like unemployment or even food benefits, if there's a restriction saying you have to be actively seeking work, but we don't recognize that what Eric's doing, uh, helping his father is a form of work maybe non-traditional, then we're not gonna actually move towards uh, being in a place of support. And if we don't look at uh, caregiver health as critical to our our health as a nation, um, we're gonna continue to uh, put more and more burden on individuals who are in this role. Even listening to Eric, you can hear that he has had to navigate complex government systems to figure out his father's benefits, which for many of us, if we've dealt with um, insurers or providers, we understand that can be complicated and time consuming. Um, Coordinating care with external parties, you know, as, as people do come into the home, keeping track of medications and appointments. These are all amazing and important project management skills in Mm -hmm. some ways. Um, And yet we kind of say, oh, that's just expected because he's being the son that he is being. Um, And so how do we shift that conversation and recognize um, and put into our policy and our practice recognition of family caregivers? So how do we do that, Jennifer? You said we first recognize who needs to hear this conversation in order order to uh, have a conversation with Eric. Yeah, I think... um, State legislatures, you know, I think uh, Virginia, where he is, uh, Georgia, here in our backyard, um, hearing where there might be opportunities to recognize uh, caregivers. Um, I say all the time, when you go to a doctor's visit, they ask you a bunch of questions Mm -hmm. about if you smoke, if you drink, if you sit on the couch for too long, um, but they don't ask if you're caring for someone. Uh, And that's a critical question, which impacts your, your health and well-being. Well, 
that's a legislative change that we could see, right? That that could become part of your annual wellness visit, mm -hmm. uh, that that question gets asked. Um, and so we are launching some work to engage people in Eric's experience, uh, who have Eric's experience, to talk to legislators directly, because I think that these stories um, are often not being heard. I'm appreciative to this chance, but we I know Eric is eager to make sure he can use this story to help change things for himself and others. Eric, let me ask you this, and you can choose to answer it or not, but what is at stake if folks, if caregivers like yourself cannot get the assistance that, that you need? Uh, I would state just flat out just mental health decline. Uh, suicide, whether internally or externally, how people lash out uh, or how they they bottle it in. But again, even people that bottle stuff in, that could, it, that could be poison as well. And just to kind of not acknowledge the person behind the person, I feel like it's true hypocrisy. I mean, I'm the person taking my father to appointments here and there. If I wasn't here, he wouldn't have anyone to take care of him. There was a time where I had to call 911 because he was unconscious. Well, if I wasn't there, I feel like he would be dead. And to try to have all these institutions in place to try to address or have my information be acknowledged, especially school loans with the president waiving fees, depending on a, if a person is permanently and totally disabled, well, 90% is close to 100. I know the, the it's nitpicky in regards to numbers, but mm -hmm. if the amount of time I'm utilizing it kind of outshines the amount of time I would use towards finding employment or covering loans, then stuff like that should be waived. If mm -hmm. full-time caregivers are taking care of people, they should have benefits be put in place. The world isn't perfect. You could be born with a disability. One can have uh, one, an accident can happen that could cause a disability or some form of an injury. So there needs to be better protection and better safety nets for, for caregivers and the people they're taking care of. Jennifer, I'll give the last word on that. What is at stake if caregivers aren't given more assistance? I think Eric's right. Mrs. Carter's been working on mental health efforts for nearly 50 years, caregiving issues for 35. Um, and these are issues that are often invisible, often stigmatized uh, and, and not brought to the forefront. So we would like to see caregiving brought from the bedroom and the boardrooms of this country to the front lines of government. And Eric, we have a listener who is asking for your information, wants to help you find employment. So we'll get that on the back end of this program. We don't make any right, promises. We don't make any promises. Yeah, no. We're just going to pass way, along the information. Okay. Yeah. Just the first step just to, to get help and realize I'm a person. Absolutely. I'm not just a caregiver. I'm not just a statistic. So the world shouldn't view people in different ways. We're people. We're here to help. Absolutely. Either we're here to help or we're here to not help. Plain and simple. <laughs> Eric Barnett, he lives in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he's the primary caregiver for his father. Both are military veterans. Also, I've been speaking with Jennifer Olson, the chief executive office, chief executive officer, excuse me, of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers in Southwest Georgia. Thank you both for taking the time, sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Eric, best of luck to you, and we'll Thank stay you. in touch. And Closer Look continues here on WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're seeing right now in Ukraine war. Well, we know war upends lives. Some 6.5 million people have been displaced in the country in the wake of the Russian invasion. That's according to the United Nations. And we know that that has happened in conflict after conflict, right? And it's a peg in a new play currently in its last week at the Atlanta's Alliance Theater. It's called Binus Six Apples. It tells the story of a 10-year-old girl who's separated from her family when they flee their home during the Korean War. Now, the play opens with Bina, played by Olivia Lampert, hearing the news from her father, played by Albert Park. We have a clip. Wait, what's happening? We have to leave. When? Right now. Right now? Right now. We can hear the fighting getting closer by the hour. By nightfall, it might just be right on top of us. As soon as we gather what we need, we're headed out. Where are we going? Busan. Where's that? The furthest edge of the country. Touching the big blue ocean on the southeast point of Korea. 
How far is it? About 70 miles. How long is it going to take to get there? I figure it'll take around 20 hours of walking total, mixed with meals and sleep and shorter stops to rest, not to mention adjustments for the terrain. With luck, we'll make it in about two and a half days, but we should be prepared for more. What's it like there? Safer than here, I hope. I don't want to go. We don't have a choice now, Bina. I hate the ocean. You love the ocean. I hate Busan. You've never even seen I it. I hate war. The play opens, as you just heard, with Bina. And you know, it's, it's the story that tells, and again, it's timely in light of the news of the recent weeks, but... This story follows Bina. She works to reunite with her family. And uh, it's a story that is very important and personal to playwright Lloyd Sud, whose parents lived during the Korean War. And he joins me now along with Chris Moses, the Alliance Theater's Director of Education. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, friends. Lloyd, let me start with you. Just even hearing that excerpt, it's very powerful. You hear a child who's trying to understand what's going on, and you hear a father, you hear the urgency in his voice, trying to explain to her at the same time and, you know, make sure his family can proceed to safety. And I know you've seen this and heard this, these lines so many times, but what, is it, what does it remind you of with your own family? Oh, it's, yeah, so much of it is just tied up in like the whole process of even thinking about the play, um, writing the play and rehearsing on it, uh, rehearsing it um, over the course of the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, the this the impetus for the story uh comes from a particular piece of family lore um my father was much younger than the bina character uh during the fall of 1950 when the events of the play happened he was probably about five or six years old um and he was the youngest of 11 children and uh anytime i would ask him about like you know what was what was life like during the war he would tell me this story about how uh, they packed up in anticipation of traveling to Busan, and uh, uh, he lived on an apple orchard, and his parents gave him this backpack and just filled mm. it with apples. Um, and he's self-aware and uh, of the fact that, they, you know, as the youngest of 11, they were probably just giving it to him, just to give him something to yeah. do, you know? But the, the, the actual apples in the bag maybe didn't seem that important at the time. Um, but when he tells the story, it's a happy memory. He felt useful. He felt like... He was doing something of value. Um, and right now, as a parent to uh, small children myself, uh, like a lot of this is just tied up with thinking about how to talk about um, mm-hmm. uh, with my kids, uh, how to share this family lore with them, how mm-hmm. to, how to uh, communicate um, you know, the ways in which their grandparents' lives were very different than theirs um, and very different than mine. Absolutely. And speaking of when you're trying to craft a story for a younger audience, this play is a co-production for for the Children's Theater Company, but I'm imagining that when you're tailoring a story about war and displacement, these are very adult topics, obviously, but impacts all generations. And now this is for a younger audience. Christopher, I'm going to start with you, but I'll come back to you as well, Lloyd. Uh, what are you looking for to make sure that a production is not too heavy, but it, it is understandable for a younger audience? What's that process like for you all? Yeah, I think we're really trying to make sure that we are getting at fundamental truths of experience. And some of those are hard. You know, I was really moved. We had a matinee this morning and there was a house full of um, middle and high school students. And I think it would be naive to think that they're not thinking about these things. I read an article this morning um, where a journalist interviewed 12 teenagers and was asking them, well, what's on your minds? What are you worried about? And this war on in Ukraine is coming up. You know, these are things that are impossible to process for any age. Um, and I think it's our responsibility to provide a way to think about it. I was moved by what your previous guest, Eric, was saying about taking something away from just being a statistic. Mm-hmm. And if we can tell a story and personalize this experience that half of Ukrainian children are going through right now, for instance, I think we have the responsibility to, to do that. Lloyd, was this, was this originally meant for a younger audience? It was, yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's a piece like this, that piece of family lore is something that I'd um, just been carrying around with me for a while. 
Um, and I had written a play uh, commissioned by Children's Theatre Company in Minneapolis some years ago. And at the opening night party for that show, um, Alyssa Adams, who's the director of new play development at CTC, she he had heard about this story of my dad with the backpack full of apples. And she came up to me and very excitedly and said, that is a play for young audiences. Wow. And I didn't see it at the time. I was like, oh, I don't know. It's, it doesn't. Uh, but then she convinced me to give it a try. And once I tried, once I sat down to start, it just, it, it was quicker than anything else I'd ever written. Uh, and I think that's because it just felt, um, I think it was a, a play I was ready to write. It was a play that I uh, probably had, had um, because I had carried around with me for so long. When you were, I'm curious, Lloyd, when you were finished with the play and you were reading, I don't know how, and I don't know what the process is for playwrights, but as you go back through it and if you're making changes, uh, did you, did you know, okay, I've got something here. This is exactly the story you want to tell. Oh, you know, the truth is, uh, I mean, it's such a hard question to answer, but I will say that, you know, I had a playwriting teacher um, once who told me that when you're writing, you know you're doing well if you're laughing or crying. And if you're not laughing or crying, then you should, like in the process of writing, you should be trying to make yourself laugh or cry. <laughs> and I will say that while I was writing this play, um, it doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty emotional experience. So just on that level, like I can never predict or I never try to assume that I know it's gonna resonate with an audience. But um, there was something immediate about knowing that it was resonating with me. But creatives always tell me that their process is usually emotional in some form or fashion. So kudos to your teacher, your educator. There. <laughs> Christopher, Chris, let me come back to you because the Alliance, you all have a guide for talking about conflict for families who have seen the play. Have you heard feedback? I'm curious. We have, um, and a lot of gratitude for giving families a chance to talk about things like displacement and war that are impossible to talk about. Um, And we've heard continually that this is giving them a way in. It's a gentle invitation, even though it's dealing with really hard topics, but it allows them to have these conversations and not shy away from them. And Chris, Chris, I'll stay with you because... Right now, obviously, we know the situation in Ukraine. This is, some may say, very timely. How can stories, plays like this, help any audience, young or old, young or older, understand the process and cope with something like this? This is through your opinion. Yeah, yeah you thank you. That's, that's a wonderful question because it, it's one of the, the reasons we really wanted to produce this piece. It's so rare that you can find a story that can invite audiences from completely different generations to come together and have an experience that is going to provide hope. Um, I think what Lloyd has done is crafted a piece that is just loaded with wisdom that will carry you through and allows you to bring whatever anxieties, whatever worries, whatever hopes you may have into this journey. And if you do that and follow Bina along the way, you are going to be rewarded. So whether that's a 75-year-old, whether it's a seven-year-old, I mean, one of the greatest things to see on our opening night was there were three generations of people there together. Some brought their parents and their child to a show. And that rarely, rarely happens. And and it's a huge testament to what Lloyd was able to create with this piece. Lloyd, I know creatives don't often look for reviews or look for critiques. Well, most of y'all don't. Some do. Um, But what has the feedback been? And when you hear something like what Chris just talked about, um, what that means to you personally? Oh, I mean, it's so gratifying. I mean, anything, any any measure of the sense that um, it's communicating uh, something similar to the, the 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 emotional journey that the play took me on while I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's translating with people, it's just uh, enormous. And I, you know, I should also not discount um, the value of um, the process itself, which is to say that. Um, being able to work on this play with a company of, um, uh, you know, you know, a largely Korean American uh, company of actors from Minneapolis and Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, uh, and just share space around this. You know, just share space around uh, the legacy of these events and 
just what it means for the, uh, those of us in the diaspora. Mm. Um, it's it's just enormous, and I think that that's one of the great things, one of the joys for me about making theater is the opportunity to just get in a room and share space with people and to to explore uh, a story together, um, not just with the the rest of the company in the in the rehearsal room, but with an audience ultimately in the theater as well. And real quickly, Lloyd, you want to go ahead and just say some wonderful things about uh, the lovely Olivia Lampert. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, I'm just so I just feel so fortunate that we. Uh, that uh, that we were able to to you know include her in this company that she was able, she was available that she was around that we were able to to meet her uh, you know so much gratitude to the uh, to the folks at CTC and uh, everybody involved with the casting because we um, you know she's the she's the center of this yeah. story she's the heart and soul of it and uh, she has just such an earnestness there's nothing there's nothing uh, there's nothing phony about her you know and. Mm. That kind of genuine, um, that genuine and earnest and sincere um, temperament and hope—it's just, uh, it just, it carries the show. Mm. Currently, in its last week of shows at Atlanta's Alliance Theater, Bina's Six Apples tells the story of a ten-year-old girl who's separated from her family when they flee their home during the Korean War. And I've been in conversation with some very wonderful folks. I've been in conversation with playwright Lloyd Sa and with Chris Moses, the Alliance Theater's Director of Education, and Lloyd, whose parents lived through the Korean War and is the playwright. Thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Rose. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. For our Paycheck to Paycheck survey, we asked respondents if they would be open to some type of guaranteed income program, whether it was federal or national or local, and many people said yes. And we've discussed two guaranteed income programs launching here in Georgia, including, including the city of Atlanta's which would be managed by the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Now, when we spoke back then with President and CEO Nancy Flake Johnson, she talked about the importance of guaranteed programs, income programs. We have got to do things like guaranteed income. We've got to do more emergency financial assistance. And please reject the concept, people don't want to work. It is a falsehood. People want to work, but to get there, they have to have child care. They have to have transportation. They have to have uh, full-time jobs that are actually full-time. Many of the people I talk to, they're working temp jobs. They're on and off, no consistent income. Hmm. Meanwhile, we wanted to know how guaranteed income programs in other cities were working. So we'll head out to Oakland, California, and learn more about the Oakland Resilience Families one of the largest guaranteed income programs in the country. Joining me now is Jesus Sharana, CEO of Up Together in Oakland, California, and Alicia Rowe, who's a participant in the program. Thank you both for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Alicia, let me start with you. You live in the city of Oakland, correct? Yes, I do, Rose. How long you been there? I'm a native. I've been here all my life, but I did take a break and I moved to Missouri for a while, but just by instinct, I'm back home. What, what part of Missouri? Because that's my home state. I, I hope we didn't. I really? hope we weren't. Uh, were we? We weren't too uh, fancy for you. We, you know, we kind of slow out there in Missouri. We just, yeah, we old I school. <laughs> I was in Joplin, Missouri. Oh, you weren't even in a good part. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should have come to St. Louis. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, um, yeah. That was, now, see, that would have been like Oakland. <laughs> you right about that. Alicia, let me ask you this. For our listeners, and you share as much as you want to, um, tell me about your household. Who lives there? Who are you responsible for? Kind of give a snapshot of your household. Uh, right now, currently, it's me and my eight-year-old grandson, whom I adopted when he was like eight months old. Mm. Uh, it's just me and him, and uh, I do the total. I, you know, I take care of him, take him to school. I recently started a, my own nonprofit, so I do a lot of outreach, and then I work part-time for this family. That's some of my church members. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of, just kind of all over the place, but in a good way. And I just 
just to have a good balance. But he's my priority. That's my priority right now is just raising him to be, you know, a good young man. And yeah. And then I'm focusing on my nonprofit and mm-hmm. then getting opportunities like this to, you know, meet new people like you. Hey, there we go. Let me ask you this. Yeah. How would you describe your financial state right now in terms of being able to make all the ends meet where they're supposed to meet and all that? How would you describe it now? Uh, with the resilient, the family's resilient program, it, it has been a great help. It has allowed me to free up some money. It has helped me pay, pay off some bills. I'm building my credit. And I've also been able to put some money away for my grandson's college fund. So mm-hmm. right now it's, it's a really a great help. And I just hope that from this, that other people will look at Oakland and see that these type of guaranteed programs do work. Let me bring Jesus into the conversation. When you hear what Alicia has said, what this guaranteed income program has done for her, let's back up a little bit. I imagine this is exactly what you all had in mind. Completely. Yeah. Uh, Rose, we, we actually have been doing this as an organization for uh, just uh, 20 years, and that is trusting and investing in people and their abilities. Um, we were uh, started with a fundamental understanding that the only answer to poverty is to actually recognize that the people who are struggling in um, under-resourced communities have a ton of ability, a ton of answers, and what we are lacking is recognition and investment. And so uh, today uh, we are thrilled that uh, Guaranteed Income Movement has been growing across the country. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, pretty much every major city across the United States. And it begins to recognize what we have been saying for quite some time and bringing that investment to bear. And hey, Sue, let's, hey Zeus, let's back up for a moment. The applicants for this program, they had to live in the city of uh, Oakland. What was the criteria that you all wanted in order to match them with this income? Sure, yeah. So at, um, as we worked with the mayor of Oakland, um, Mayor Schaff, uh, initially what she wanted to be able to do is to look at some of those most under-resourced communities, predominantly those that are made up of uh, Black, uh, Latino, Latina, um, Asian American, Native American uh, of Oakland, and be able to target those com- those families, uh, so individuals with, with dependents um, inside of the household, within a, a household income of somewhere between 12000 and 32000 um, but really understanding that uh, a yearly income, if there's seven people in your household, right, um, is uh, a $32,000 income is, is not in any shape uh, sure. putting you in a position, let alone a $50,000 income to be get out of poverty. So uh, looking at the area income to, to really be able to uh, bring that qualification to bear. And so there was a simple qualifi- uh, I'm sorry, application that people had to do through our website at uptogether.org that basically help us um, identify how many people were interested in participating, whether or not they qualified. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got over 3,000 applications for 300 initial slots. And wow. then we did a lottery to be able to choose those 300 individuals. Let me ask you this, Jesus, 3,000 applicants. We know we, we can, <laughs> we know what that means, but then you were able to, to identify 300. How much money were they in a stipend were they given? Yeah, so they are receiving $500 a month for 18 months, and this is completely um, unstructured, however they want to be able to use. Uh, we have been able to build an online platform that allows us to directly deposit these dollars or for them to get a prepaid card, and they get to do what they choose with it. And, I, you know, I, I know someone out there listening because I know my listeners because they email me and they're thinking, wow, just $500 a month extra for a yeah. household. And Alicia, mm-hmm. as you started, to, Alicia, as you started to get that $500 a month, you were able to really make a significant change and shift in your quality of life for you and your grandson. Yes, I was. At first, it was, you know, I didn't believe it because I let the card sit to be from just a little humor. I let the card sit for like two months. What? Alicia, wait a minute now. You... I did because I was like, I, I didn't believe it, you know, so then I finally took the car to Walmart and I bought a microwave. So just a little humor. And once I realized it, you know, it was it was a great feeling because it was just, it was like 
it's, it's not like we choose to be low. It's not like we wake up and say, oh, I want to become, I want to be low income. Sure. And, you know, so just for somebody to believe in us, you know, it was it was just a great feeling because it, it gave me the initiative to pay it forward. That's one of my slogans, pay it forward. Okay, somebody's believing in me. They're not standing over me. So I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this work for my family. And so I just sat down and did, you know, made me like an outline. And I've been going by that outline. And I, I know that, you know, $500 times 18 is $9,000. So I'm also, and I've shared this with uh, Elson and another uh, uh, platform, that I want to make sure that once this is over, that my money has a residual effect. I don't want to, you know, once they like consider like dry up, what am I, you know, I want it to have a residual effect, you know, so it, it has a, you know, constant turnover. So that's my plan. Wow. And, and Jesus, that $500 a month for 18 months, I imagine you have a lot of stories like Alicia's that come back to you all. Yeah, no, and I, I was going to jump in just quickly and just say to Alicia's point, one of the first things that happens is that there's disbelief that people <laughs> yeah. have been ignored um, in this franchise for so long, right? Like that even the access to just free money is all of a sudden, wait, is this, is this, am I deserving of this, right? Like, and just think about us as a society, uh, sort of the stigma that we've put on these, like, uh, by choice, uh, disfranchised communities and also on the resource communities. And that's right. And then the other one that, as Alicia is saying, is that people think about how do I stabilize? How do I use these dollars for some of the, the basic needs that my household needs, pay bills, et cetera? And then how can I help my my brothers and sisters in my community to be able <laughs> to benefit from this as well? Like we, we had a, an individual like Alicia who's like, hey, whatever I do, I'm going to try to use these dollars specifically for small businesses in, in Oakland. Mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah. really always the case. Like people think, hey, let me stabilize and then how can I help those around me? Mm -hmm. Jesus, is this also, when we talk about these guaranteed income programs, through your viewpoint, you think this has to be public-private partnerships. We know that the city of Atlanta is in a pilot program and Georgia has a, a pilot program, but because of funding as well, too, you feel this is a, a, a perfect model for public-private partnerships? Yeah, so for us, what we're trying to do is to help change this narrative first, not only uh, inside of the communities that have been ignored, but also uh, for policymakers, because we feel like government can step in and, and fill this role. And I, I love the, the beginning clip that you played, um, where we talk about, well, how do you pay for childcare? How do you pay for healthcare? There are policy choices we can make today of investing in people that don't necessarily have to be always direct cash, but by having universal uh, healthcare, by doing universal childcare, right? Mm -hmm. All of these pieces are going to have a deep impact inside of uh, people's pockets and economies, and, and they are deserving of that sort of uh, care and investment as well. Alicia, as we begin to wrap up, let me ask you this. Had you not been able to be a part of this guaranteed income program, and I asked you earlier about your financial state now, without this program, where do you think your financial state might be right now? Uh, basically, I would have been looking for avenues as to like maybe take up another class in college or so so I can get the financial aid to help me pay off some bills. I would have been coming up with some kind of solutions besides, you know, trying to not to borrow from people or adding to my credit debt. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I probably would have been up against if it hadn't been for the guaranteed income program. Jesus, what is your message to cities like Atlanta who were just starting this process with the guaranteed income programs? And also, what do you think people get wrong about these programs as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think the message is clear is um, as you're seeking to be able to address the many challenges, uh, oftentimes systemic, that are uh, mm -hmm. uh, affecting your city, don't look far. Look inside of the community, the people who are every day creating the solutions and invest in them and figure out a way to uh, creating a, a, a middle person to have to get to them, um, wipe that clean and begin to... Uh, by demonstrating that sort of investment, you're going to get tenfold back uh, on that side. And I think that the other thing that I, I would mention is that, uh, you know, in general, uh, across the country for us, I feel like there's a movement and there's a moment that the pandemic 
showed the cracks in our systems. And, yes. and not to forget that, that in, in that time, the resilience, the resilience of people demonstrated itself over and over again. Um, and it's not going to change tomorrow, right? As things sort of ease, but that answer continues to be the case. Mm. Jesus Gerena is CEO of Up Together out in Oakland, California. I've also been speaking with Alicia Rowe, who was a participant in their Guaranteed Income program. Alicia, what's your little grandson's name? His name is Jeremiah. Well, best of luck to tell, to Jeremiah. Tell him to keep his room in order. Thank you. <laughs> I know about thank those eight-year-olds. opportunity. <laughs> thank you so much, Alicia. And Jesus, thank you so much for taking thank the time. Much. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. And our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And I'm interested in your thoughts on guaranteed income programs. We've done a lot of that now, and we're going to continue this during our Paycheck to Paycheck series. So tell me your thoughts on guaranteed income programs and if you missed any of today's show it's online at wabe.org slash closer look and of course closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast so subscribe to closer look wherever you like because it will be free if it's not let me know stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta i'm rose scott Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.